Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. So hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining us for our the second part of our behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia boot camp. We are going to talk about what to do in a crisis and all of the above. I am joined again um, by Tanya Witt, Sharissa Duffy, and Dr. Anthony Nettleman. Um, we are going to dive into this conversation because I think this is one of those things that we are always asking ourselves when everything seems to go wrong. So what do we do at a crisis? What are those crisis interventions? And um, um, Dr. Nettleman, I'm going to go to you first. If you could just start us off talking about how do we handle the crises that we see with our dementia uh, patients? Sure. So I had an interesting situation um, about a year or so back where um, staff came, you know, running up to me because one of their patients, they described her as she was throwing knives. And I was like, this is like serious. What's going on? So I went up there and um, this is where that dice model that we talked about could have been been helpful for the staff. Um, you know, when I sat down and talked with the patient, she ended up throwing her food tray because she was angry the food was cold and there happened to be a butter knife on it. So they came to me saying she was throwing knives, whereas in reality, she was just, <laughs> she was angry that her food was cold. So in in that case, when you, when you need to de-escalate someone, you really need to know what's going on. Um, <clears throat> I will say before we touch on de-escalation, in a perfect world, you do whatever you can to prevent situations from happening in the first place. Um, that can be really hard to do, um, especially in congregate care, um, like long-term care communities. But um, you know, we talked last time about um, attending to you know the amount of you know competing sounds in your environment, and lighting being you know, a little more peaceful and relaxing. And if, if you can sort of find a way to mitigate some of that overstimulation, you're probably less likely going to find yourself in a situation that you have to de-escalate somebody. Other things you can do um, involve how you interact with, with the patients on a regular basis. Like if you're offering residents choices whenever possible, you're really going to probably better your odds of things going well. Um, saying something like, would you rather go to your room now or go to bingo? As opposed to, you're going to bingo now, or just taking their, them there without even asking them. Um, some other things that can be helpful uh, from an administrative standpoint is to keep uh, staffing as stable as you can. You know, these um, residents, even though these residents might not seem like they have the best um, relationship with staff, they do form bonds. Um, and when staffing is more stable, um, they have better outcomes. Um, it's also important that 
as we talked about last time, to make sure that you have you know adequate pain management available, and to actually use it in the event that um, someone's in pain. Um, it, it's it's important that uh, you don't let pain go untreated because you're really going to find yourself in a situation where this resident is acting in a way that you might not know how to intervene. Whereas you know p- providing a prescribed pain medication could have prevented that situation. But there are times where you can prepare as much as you want and stuff still happens, right? Crises still um, still happen and you have to intervene and, you know, people are throwing knives. <laughs> um, so in terms of de-escalation, um, there are many different programs um, that are uh, tailored to de-escalate uh, folks. Um, in general, de-escalation is just a combination of strategies and techniques. Whatever you can do to really reduce agitation or aggression, there's really no one right thing that you can do that will work 100% of the time. Um, I think it's kind of more of an art form. It's something that can be done skillfully with practice. Um, You could read a lot of books on it, but until you're putting it into practice, um, you might not be, you know, averting many crises until you get to get to do it a few times. Can you give us any examples um, of like a moment where you've had to de-escalate a situation? Um, well, there was one in particular that stands out where um, I, I like to think that actually I took a, a bit of a backseat to this. There was a resident who um, had limited uh, ability. Um, there was a resident who had uh, difficulty speaking due to a stroke and he was um, highly agitated and he was threatening to pull his peg tube out and that kind of caused quite a stir and you had maybe four or five nurses there and aides plus other residents um, and I, I didn't intervene all that much except I um, encouraged the staff to sort of clear out um, because the the overwhelming majority of people in these facilities want to help. So when something's happening, people kind of rush in and that was really making things worse. So once we were able to sort of clear the room out, we could have like a one-on-one with somebody um, and and we can address their needs a little more directly. Um, and that really helped with the situation. It only took like a minute or two once everybody left for him to calm down and, and go about his day. So I think the the question that probably is on everyone who's listening's mind and on my mind is, what is the role of medications in these situations? Can you guys touch on when is it appropriate versus um, when we can withhold it? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it really depends on the situation. Um, A lot of times when there's a you know crisis that's occurring um sometimes the crisis can resolve resolve before you can even you know be in touch with the person who would be able to order a medication um and that's going to be dependent on the patient you know if the patient already has you know a prn medication ordered or if you're having to call a provider and their response time etc um i think it's important to still you know look through the ways that you can at least get the situation a little bit under control before you can get um, the medication orders or, you know, talk with a provider. 
But you're going to have certain situations where it is, you know, it's truly an emergency. A patient's agitated, aggressive, um, you know, at risk of hurting themselves or somebody else. Um, and you're still going to try these techniques that that you would use. Um, but you also do need to, you know, have an immediate solution um, to get the patient safe and, you know, keep the safety of the other patients. I think that's really the the biggest circumstance when it comes in that this medication is required right now. Um, and, you know, there's different medications that you can use for that. I think when we often are getting calls um, for other situations that, you know, it might not be that severe of a crisis, but it's still a crisis. Um, you know, that's where you can pause and say, okay, what have we done? Um, and what are we going to do? Uh, there's a focus in long-term care, you know, on the reduction of psychotropics and, you know, the reduction of PRN medications um, being ordered because you want to make sure they're only given when they need to be given. Um, and Teresa can probably add in here really at any time. But when we get calls, um, you know, often they might have already had a medication given or we could be seeing the patient after um, they had a, a crisis episode and, and received the medication. So from a provider standpoint, we often look at going back kind of to that DICE model again to decide if if our interventions were appropriate and, you know, do we need to continue with this medication? Do we need to consider changes to their routine medications? Um, and what do we need to do moving forward? Yeah, and and I agree there, Tana, that, you know, medications, they have their place. They're, they have a purpose and, and they're necessary at times. Um, I do think sometimes, too, we also need to, need to take into account that when we are getting those crisis calls, that we are taking the time to also evaluate, like, what's going on with the person who's calling. Because sometimes on the unit, when they've had five or six patients who are escalating and the behaviors are out of control, and they're calling me on this one patient who just might have some increased behaviors, they might not actually need that hard-hitting medication. It just might need to help have a conversation with the staff member to help them de-escalate so that they can help the other patients de-escalate. So I think there's a couple of things there with that. I mean, the staff, you know, you're you're there with them all day. And at some point, when you have a lot of patients who are having behaviors, it can become overwhelming for the staff. So we also have to take that into account when they're calling us. But it is important to make sure that the, the patient is safe and the other patients are safe. And that's where the medications really come into play. In addition to making sure that we've asked, you know, what non-pharmacological interventions have you tried? Is there anything else going on? Can we remove the patient from this setting? Can we take them to a more quiet room? If all of that has occurred and it's not being effective at that point, we do need to make sure that the patient is safe or other patients are safe. And that does require medication at times. Doesn't mean that that medication has to stay long-term. It could just be a one-time dose. But those are, things, those are things that we do have to assess and keep in mind when we're looking at that. Yeah, and I think, oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say that I appreciate um, the empathy that you're um, describing that we should show to our staff 
I, I was curious, like when it when we do need to start a medication, which one would you advise or or what is the best one time dose? But um, Tana, I want to hear what you were going to say, because I jumped in over your comment. So please um, continue. No, actually, I was going to lead into that. I was going to say it like assessing what medication to use in a crisis is actually still should be very patient specific. Um, you know, we'll get calls um, on patients and depending on the level of severity, you know, if a patient is severely agitated and aggressive, you you have your go-to medications that you would use. Typically, it's going to be a quick-acting antipsychotic that can help calm them down, uh, benzodiazepine that can calm them down, um, you know, maybe depending on the patient's you know, profile history, um, using uh, Benadryl in addition to that. That's a lot, though. And I think um, when people think of psychiatry and agitation um, in patients that have other psychiatric diseases, we see doses of these medications at at higher doses, um, and we see the use of these more frequently. I'll get calls for crisis, and the first thing I really want to know is, okay, what has the patient already taken, and how long ago was that? And what's the patient scheduled to get, and when? Um, because depending on the timing of those medications, that's going to impact my decision of what to prescribe. I also want to know, you know, how old are they? What's their body weight? What's their BMI? Um, using a five milligram dose of Halidol for, you know, a little elderly patient with dementia who's agitated, that could be a significant amount of medication for that patient. Um, so you really have to take in a couple of different factors to look at. I've also um, prescribed medications that they're already on. Um, if the patient's, you know, taking Risperidol um, and they take it easily and they already have it prescribed, I'll give them an extra dose of that um, or, you know, really any medication. The other thing I've also done in the past is just give them their medications sooner that are scheduled um, to see if that helps too. So I think, and you know, Sharissa can add too, she prescribes a lot. Um, but one thing we have to do with that sometimes is educate the staff on why we're making those decisions um, and and get them to understand. I also think it takes from a provider standpoint, you know, being available if it doesn't work. I'd rather order one milligram of Halidol for, you know, the little elderly lady that weighs, you know, 99 pounds and she is you know, 85 years old, then order and get a call in an hour that it wasn't working or it didn't work, you know, enough, um, then give her five milligrams without, you know, knowing if that's going to be effective or not. Um, and I'd also just add, you, you also have to take into consideration what have they tried in the past? You know, if we've already been treating it, how did we treat it before? What was the outcome? Did they have any side effects? Those type of things as well. Right. And I do think, too, as you were saying, Tiana, that it is really important to make sure that we're also trying to use the lowest dose possible of a medication. And I know sometimes when when it's a crisis situation, we, you know, you get the call and it's like, I need something right now. And it's like you, you give them a lower dose and it's like, that doesn't seem to be enough or that you don't think that's going to be enough. And it goes back to that whole conversation and that communication with the explaining of, well, let's try this because of this and this and this. When we explain things, it makes it easier for someone to understand the rationale behind what we're doing as opposed to just saying, no, we're doing this and that's it. 
it gets people to be on board with what you're doing. And oftentimes giving that medication and encouraging the use of the non-farm while that medication is working, it can help get rid of some of those behaviors while using that lower dose and not having to keep going up on a dose or giving a repeated dose. So let me ask, when we are evaluating those acute symptoms that may occur that's leading us to get those urgent phone calls um, about behaviors, what else should we be asking? Uh, let's say the call goes to the attending um, team and the, the clinician on call before it comes to you. What, what questions should we be asking um, for a patient who we know has behavioral um, and psychological symptoms? Yeah, I like to know, um, you know, you kind of, I keep going back to the DICE model, it's kind of that, um, but you're really wanting to know the details surrounding the the instance. How long has this been occurring for? Did it just start? Has this ever happened before? Um, you know, how severe is the symptom that they are experiencing? Um, we provide call 24-7, so, you know, the level of crisis can be low versus, you know, very high and, and emergent. Um, so you have to gauge that and then react based on that. But um, you really want to do a comprehensive evaluation, you know. Um, have there been any medication changes recently? Um, because I can provide a medication that's going to stop the behavior right now, but then you also have to consider what do we need to do to try to prevent this from happening again? Um, the patient could have had a dose reduction of one of their medications, and this is a behavior um, that is occurring because they're not tolerating that dose reduction. So instead of, you know, adding on a new medication, PRN, and letting, you know, having the staff give it anytime they get agitated, let's adjust their primary medications that they're taking to provide them with symptom relief and to prevent this from happening again, hopefully moving forward. Um, always assessing to see if the patient has something else going on underlying. And we know, you know, from a disease state that any type of, you know, infectious process um, can cause patients to have delirium. Um, and when patients have delirium, they typically can have psychiatric symptoms, including increased agitation, aggression, psychosis. Um, and so you want to evaluate that we're not missing something medical that could be occurring that could be contributing to the behaviors. Um, I also think the other questions that we need to be asking are like, are is the patient eating and sleeping? Are they getting a good night's sleep? Have they been up for a couple of days? Is this causing increased behaviors? Are they going to the bathroom? I mean, those are simple things that if those aren't treated and those aren't well managed, those are going to cause problems. So we need to know that. So those are questions to ask. The other questions that I ask are, what's the trigger? Like what happened prior to this incident? Sometimes I get the response that, well, their family just left. Well, every time their family leaves, they're having an increase in behaviors. Maybe we need to look at that and do something so that when the family's there, they're more calm so that when they leave, they're more calm. Those are things we need to look at because obviously we don't want them to be in distress every time their family leaves. It doesn't make it a good situation for the patient or the family. I think you bring up a good point and um, referencing back to the, pre the prior session, the sensory and the environment that that person is in. Uh, I, I know I've seen situations where 
a new roommate has come and now I have two agitated people in the room. So it is a really good point. I thank you for raising it. Yeah. So in that situation where you do have it, I think I've seen it where the family comes in and, and as they're leaving, that person becomes quite agitated. What what are like any examples of what you have had to implement for those situations? And I, I've had a patient who every time um, their daughter would leave, she would become so tearful and so anxious. Um, they just could not control her um, to the point where she was trying to elope and it just became so out of hand where I had to have a conversation with the patient's daughter where I'm like, look, can you let the staff know what time you're coming in? Because we're going to prescribe a PRN medication prior to you coming in so that when you are ready to leave, this medication should be effective and she'll be more calm. And it actually did work. It didn't work completely because she still got upset some when her daughter left, but she wasn't trying to elope. And there wasn't that risk of her harming herself by getting out of the building and, you know, having any type of problems with that. But she wasn't, you know, perfect, but she was better by doing something prior to prevent a problem later. Yeah, and I think that happens pretty commonly. I mean, I always go back to like it's individualized because, um, you know, patients and patients with dementia are very individualized and you have to be able to identify what those individualized symptoms are, you know, what's causing them, what could be contributing. But I think it's it's very important to have those conversations and look at you know, anything that you can do to help mitigate um, the result of that. Obviously, you don't want to um, not have the family come visit. You know, you're going to uh, do other things to, to help with that. But I think like to Sharice's point, getting the family involved in the plan, you know, getting the staff involved in the plan, identifying that as what's triggering is really the most helpful. And if you can prevent it, um, it's going to be a lot distressing for the patient as well. So I, I I appreciate all of that. I, I do have a question again around medications. When do we recommend that this person may need um, something more long-term? Maybe we're seeing behaviors every day. There, there's a lot of disruption to um, how they're functioning during the day. When do, you, when do we make that decision that something long-term or a medication that a routine medication has to be prescribed? I think that should always be like the key to any assessment. I mean, after you handle a crisis, um, you know, there should be a follow up evaluation as to what the next steps are. Um, you do have situations where you have an isolated incident um, with dementia patients, like maybe there was a specific trigger and um, the patient was very very agitated and aggressive and you had to utilize you know this emergent medication just to provide safety but then you know looking back at it you realized there was something you could have done non-pharmacologically maybe to prevent it or um you know like we've had patients where they just can't have a roommate you know um and the facilities had to accommodate that because anytime they have a roommate 
something occurs. You know, there's certain things that you could identify where maybe you don't necessarily need that long acting medication. But I think when a crisis happens, you should always be assessing what do we need to do with this patient on a routine basis to prevent the use of of having to use, you know, this emergent medication. So again, I'll go back to it being, you know, uh, individualized to the patient. Um, but Sharissa touched on this earlier. Um, I'll solve the issue now and give something to calm them down, but I'm going to start investigating pretty much everything um, regarding the patient's routine, kind of care, or what medications they're taking, what changes have been made um, to determine if I need to make those changes to their medications. Sleep, I always will say, is probably the easiest thing that you can treat that can impact um, pretty much anything going on with the patient. If they're not sleeping, um, it can lead to to worsening behaviors. And maybe it's not recognized to you that that happens until we get a call in the middle of the night, you know, from the nurse that the patient is just out of control. They're wandering and, you know, they're trying to elope. And then when you look at it, the patient you know, maybe hasn't been sleeping very well for the past, you know, couple weeks. Um, I actually did have a patient where um, I was told by staff that, you know, she was very, very out of control, wondering. She was doing some bizarre things like eating, um, like getting stuff out of the trash and, and thinking it was food that she could eat. And I did get a call in the middle of the night regarding that from a nurse. And so I, I think I gave her something to sleep, to be honest. Um, but when I saw her, I, I realized this is a reoccurring, you know, situation. And so I, I started her on a very low dose of trazodone to help her sleep at night. Um, and she didn't have any further issues. She stopped you know, wandering, eloping. She stopped having these bizarre behaviors. I mean, she still had dementia and she would wander a little bit during the day, but she was sleeping at night. So her behaviors didn't um, escalate further to where it was, you know, requiring these calls. So I think you really have to look at the whole picture of the patient um, and make sure you're giving them the right medication for the right symptom that can be contributing versus, you know, solving it with this short acting medication that might have more side effects or, you know, choosing the wrong um, medication to treat uh, the wrong symptom. So, yeah. And and to that point, Tana, I agree where like a PRN is needed for an emergency situation, for sure, right? We, we need to make sure that that's taken care of. But it's always better to have their scheduled medications where they're getting something that's effective all day, as opposed to constantly be giving something that's short acting and, and we're doing it every four hours and giving them an increased risk of falls and everything else, I'd rather look at a long-term medication as opposed to continually having them on a PRN. So if I'm seeing that they're taking a PRN medication that I've given them and they're taking it frequently, that's a clue to me that maybe this medication either needs to be scheduled or I need to look at their other medications and make adjustments to those so that we don't have to utilize those PRNs that have their own risks associated with them as frequent. 
Yeah. And I was going to clarify the point of my story with her. Um, the reason I was saying you have to make sure you're investigating all of this is because like what was actually reported to me with the wandering is that she was like delusional. Um, and if you think it of treating delusions, you're looking at a completely different class of medications. So you have to find the real cause of what some of these behaviors can be to make sure you're treating it with the right medications. So can I, I want to shift the conversation um, back to something that was pointed out around the gradual dose reductions. Can we just um, spend a minute on how do we, how should we be approaching gradual dose reductions and what do we need to do or say, or who do, who do we call when we are now saying that that's a fail? Um, and Tana, I'll start with you. Well, I think, you know, that's, that's something that we really prioritize with with all of our patients in long-term care is evaluating their medications. And, the you know, CMS has the rules regarding how often that has to be done. But in reality, um, our organization and the way we, you know, train our providers and practices that we have is that we should be doing that at every single visit. Um, so evaluating, like, are these medications appropriate for the patient? How long have they been taking the medication? Are they having any side effects from the medication? And does the benefit versus the risk of the medication, or does the benefit outweigh the risk of the medication? Um, but when you're looking at actually doing a GDR, um, you know, you're you're wanting to make sure you're trialing it um, as the disease Pro progresses. Um, you know, patients have, they could be extremely agitated at one point in their dementia. And then if that disease progresses and they lose, you know, some of their abilities um, physically, that agitation can um, decrease. So you look at, do they still need this dose of a medication? However, sometimes all signs point that it's appropriate. We should try a, a gradual dose reduction um, and we do. And then unfortunately it fails. So like you said, what do you do when that happens? Um, I think that understanding the GDR process and understanding, you know, the treatment of the patient is the most important. Um, if you're a different provider or, you know, if there's not collaboration between the team regarding this type of stuff, um, it would be easy for me to reduce the patient's you know, let's say antidepressant um, that they've been on, which was given for anxiety and um, their symptom that they have after we reduce the antidepressant is agitation. Um, so the provider that is called decides that they're going to prescribe something for agitation um, instead of necessarily maybe just trying to go back up on the medication that we just reduced. Um, so I hope that answers your question, but I'm not sure if you were asking also like specifically what you should call. No, I think um, it does. I think it answers it to the point where it, it, it does is helpful. I, I will say that in uh, just the real life example, I've gotten calls where um, the staff's like the gradual dose reduction didn't work. We need to go back. And that is when usually I'm like, can you please let's let's just figure out what 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 really happened. So back to that point that you made earlier about maybe I need to know what's going on <laughs> before I say that something didn't work. Yeah, we get that a lot, too. And Teresa could probably talk to that. Um 
you it's almost like the fear that it's not going to work too um i think and so we usually when we do gradual dose reductions we'll we'll talk to the staff about like this is why we're doing this this is why it's important um and then if they call you know letting us know that there's symptoms i'll even you know come back and say that i i want to monitor it more or I might actually be doing a do- gradual dose reduction on a medication that has higher risks. And even if they are having increased behaviors, I'm still not going to go back up on that medication. Maybe I prescribe something different that has less risks um, and I still plan on taking them off of that. So I think for us, just the more that we can educate the team on why we're doing things and what the rationale is and how it benefits the patient, but also showing them that they have support. You know, we're not going to just sorry, we're reducing these meds and then we're not going to, you know, do anything to help if there are actual issues. I think that's really what's been helpful to us. But Sharice, I know you've had a lot of, um, yeah, Yeah, I actually, I I find that, you know, the, the bigger problem I have is more of when I have a stable patient and I'm like, we're going to try a GDR, the resistance, because they're like, no, they're stable. Don't touch them. And it's just that conversation with like, I understand that they're stable and that there's, you know, things are going good, but this might not be the dose that this patient needs any longer. The patient may have progressed in their disease process. We don't know that until we trial a GDR on this patient. I'm going to go down by the smallest dose possible and I'm going to see how they do. If they do great, wonderful, we can keep trying. But if they don't, you can call me at any time and we can go ahead and put that dose back up. I think it's just being honest and open with the staff and explaining like the rationale behind what you're doing that helps them get on board with it. But it is, it's very scary for them because when you have patients who historically had X, Y, and Z behavior and now they haven't, and I'm telling you, I'm going to take this away that does cause them to feel very stressed. Maybe. So would you recommend like reviewing? Okay, this is the, these are the triggers. This is what we know works. These are the the de-escalation moments we've had before. So we have a plan um, with that that dose reduction. Yeah, I think for sure that all of that needs to be reviewed with them and explained that, you know, Going back to to education, I think is always important, especially with the staff. I, I think everybody enjoys education and they like to know, like, what can I do to help the patient? And if I'm giving you this information that here, this is what you can do when the patient is doing this, here are things that you can try as opposed to giving more medication. I do believe that most staff is going to be willing to try that so that they don't have to give the patient more medication. I don't I don't think anybody wants all of this polypharmacy that we have. I don't think anybody wants their patient to be snowed. I, I just think that we have to have that clear communication and that clear education that this is what you can do and we are here to help support you. I think, um, Sharissa, you're giving it a, like the third boot camp if we're ever going to do it um, topic how to get all the polypharmacy. Um <laughs> You know, I know we're we're close to our time, and I just want to thank each and every one of you for again participating in a, a lively discussion. Any closing thoughts um, from any one of you on on you know just pearls of wisdom? 
Yeah, I think um, when you look at crisis, um, you just have to understand that there's different levels. Um, and, you know, as a caregiver, make sure you're comfortable with, you know, ways that you can prevent how you can de-escalate, um, when to call and what informations you need. And then just to know the role of medications, not to be fearful of using them, um, but also understanding that you don't always have to use them um, long term, you know, if there are behaviors and that there's more that you have to investigate and look into after, you know, one of these crises um, occurs. Because just giving a medication routinely or, you know, PRN after that happens, it's not always going to provide the best quality of care for the patient or solve the issue in the long run. Yeah, and I 100% agree with that, Tana, and the fact that, you know, medications are great, they have their purpose, but, and sometimes, and most of the times a PRN is, is a Band-Aid, right? We're trying to stop what's going on, but we don't know what the underlying problem is, and we need to get to that. We need to see what we can do to work towards correcting that and, and helping the patient be comfortable in what's going on, as opposed to just continually putting a Band-Aid on it. So some of that is that non-pharmacological stuff that we've talked about turning down the lights, turning down the noise, bringing all that stuff together to help prevent the episodes of crisis that occur. You know, with enough education and training in this, it's important to remember that no crisis is insurmountable. Thank you. Thank you all. And I hope everyone listening, um, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. I, I thank each of you for a very great discussion. Have a great day. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.